You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Hello, Steve Morrison here at CSIS. On February 18th and 19th, I had the pleasure of joining the Munich Security Conference. That was a Friday and Saturday. It was a particularly poignant moment in the looming crisis of Ukraine. What I did while I was there was enlist six friends and prominent figures in the world of health security and global health, as well as foreign affairs, to do a mini-series of podcasts. Those include Seth Berkeley, the head of Gavi, Robin Niblett, the head of Chatham House in London, Dr. John Nkengazong, the head of Africa CDC, and soon, we hope, will be the director of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief here in Washington, D.C., Tom Boyke, Council on Foreign Relations, Jeremy Farrar, Welcome Trust, and Richard Hatchett, head of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. I do hope you'll enjoy these. Each of them in their own way offered some great insights into what was happening from Munich in the fields of health security and global health, as well as the broader geopolitical crisis that was building at our door at that time. Thank you. Steve Morrison here, we're in Munich. It's Saturday, February 20th. I'm joined by a friend and someone we all admire greatly, Dr. Jeremy Farrar director of the Wellcome Trust since 2013. Jeremy, great to see you again. Yeah, and you? So let's start. It was two years ago at the advent of this pandemic when we were last year together. It was a rather fraught and uncertain moment. So two years later, where are we? You've been rather outspoken about this bumpy transition we're in. You've published some pieces, one in the Washington Post. You've also appeared in The Guardian a few times talking about We need to be really careful on what we don't know in terms of the viral evolution here. Um, You've been a pretty tough critic, outspoken critic of global health, of global leadership, a sort of catastrophic failure. So bringing it back to, to Munich and the Munich Security Conference, tell us what are your core messages that you're trying to serve here? And beyond that, what are you observing here at this moment? Ukraine hangs over us. We can get back to that. But what are you hearing? And what are your messages? Yeah, so two years ago, it seems like both yesterday and it seems like a lifetime ago. And you're right, February 2020 was right at the very start. But in truth, in February 2020, we knew all we needed to know. In fact, in terms of the virus and whether this was going to be the event that it's turned out to be. Now, none of us could have predicted then it would turn out to be quite as it was, but we had all of the information by then that has subsequently panned out. You mentioned Ukraine, and I think it's really important to mention that. In the context A, it's very troubling, of course, but it also reminds us that interest and tensions and political interest will wane from the pandemic uh, because other events take over. And this pandemic is not over yet. Um, I frame it in three ways. One is that we knew this pandemic was coming. We've had plenty of warnings over the last 20 years, but perhaps failed to prepare properly. This pandemic is not over yet. We've watched the emergence of Omicron. 
And we've watched within 60 days the Omicron variant subdividing into other variants. We don't know the future trajectory of the evolution of this virus, and we're not in control of that. And thirdly, this will not be the last pandemic. And so we've been coming to Munich Security Conference now for, what, four or five years, and really with the aim to say that that we see health through a research and a health agenda, an equity agenda, social justice agenda, but we also appreciate it's a political agenda, it's a political choice, and it's a security issue. And the coming together, I think, of the health and security communities to learn from each other, even though they may not be always natural partners, is, I think, crucial. And the pandemic has demonstrated that. Now, we're seeing across Europe, UK, North America, parts of Asia, we're seeing a, a pretty remarkably fast shift of politics internally towards an exhausted, impatient, frustrated public, sometimes prone to violence. We're seeing governments that are fast to move to declare that this is soon over in a transition. And these are, in your view and in, in my own and those of others, these are premature and somewhat hazardous that we could see a precipitous decline in the interest-focused financing dedicated to the global response. The global response, the low- and middle-income challenges are still very much there and present. What are you seeing here at, at the Munich Security Conference that might give you some hope that those trend lines aren't going to weigh too heavily in the calculations of high-level leadership here? You frame it very well. There is a natural desire. We all feel it as individuals, let alone as countries or political leaders. We all feel fed up with this pandemic. But our emotional state doesn't determine the outcome of the pandemic. And uh, we are, we should remind ourselves, we're just two years in to a brand new human infection, which is now pervasive everywhere. It is in every country. It is transmitting at eye-watering levels still. And whilst science has made phenomenal progress with vaccines and therapeutics, the pandemic is not suddenly going to come to an end. There will be further surprises. There will be further shocks. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for politicians, policymakers, and countries to start thinking about that transition and planning around the most likely scenario. And the most likely scenario is that with vaccines, we protect people from severe disease, and that whilst the virus may evolve, there won't be a virus variant that comes up, which completely takes us back to January 2020. But it is not the only scenario. And I think we have to both prepare for the most likely scenario but make sure quietly, maybe behind the scenes, we're putting in place what is required if that scenario proves not to be true. We must not be caught vulnerable again, as we were in January 2020, to a virus that changes in ways that are not yet predictable and take us back to some point of 2020. And whilst we should prepare for the most likely, we've also got to make sure we prepare for the other scenarios, which are also possible. Thank you. Now, you've sketched out some of these scenarios. You shared some some of that, and, and some of it's been embodied in writing in Time magazine and elsewhere. Tell us about what you see as the breakout of scenarios and, and some rough estimations of probabilities. So I think the first scenario I would put at very close to zero, that is that this virus disappears. Yep. So it, it's probably not quite zero. I would put it at the number one and, and give it an almost zero probability. At the other end of the spectrum is a second event. So the COVID pandemic doesn't prevent another virus emerging and that we have another influenza or something else not yet known about, which comes and the longer the pa this pandemic goes on, 
the greater the chance of that happening. Remember, we've had regional or global events every two or three years for the last 20 so years. So we wind up in that scenario with a dual pandemic. Where you have COVID not yet disappear. Yes. And you have another event that comes up. That's the other end. I would put that, at, we can't quantify this, but that is non-zero chance. And then in the middle group, and perhaps the most important group in a way, the scenarios, the most likely is that the vaccines continue to protect us. We make those vaccines available globally so that the vast majority of the world has access to them. And with natural infection, we're protected. That is the central hypothesis. That is what most governments are working and on. And antivirals come forward. And the antivirals come forward. We get better at treating it. We get better at preventing it. And in, in this proverbial, we learn to live with it. And, and it, it becomes, migrates towards greater mildness in some yeah, I, I don't buy the greater mildness. Um, there's, there's no evidence that human infections go to intrinsically less virulent. But it becomes more manageable. But it becomes more manageable. And that is, the, I think, the most likely outcome. 40, 50%? Yeah, 40, 50%. 50, maybe 50, 50, 55%, the most likely scenario. And it's what I think central policy should be thinking about. There are two other scenarios that I think we cannot ignore. One is that actually... New variants do emerge, which escape immunity, and take us back to the severity pre-Omicron. In other words, back to the original strain or the Delta strain. So they cause illness in the vulnerable, the elderly, people with immunocompromised states, and there is long COVID again. And long COVID has a tail to it, which could take many, many years. In other words, we're back to some point of, let's say, mid-2020, when the vaccines become much less effective and the treatments become less effective. And then there's another scenario where actually the virus goes under more change uh, through recombination events, uh, not yet predictable, where actually it changes its nature. Instead of predominantly causing severe disease, for instance, in the elderly or the uh, vulnerable, it actually affects younger people. You know, none of these scenarios are impossible. And I think that whilst we should be planning for the central case, we must not assume, we must have humility in the face of a two-year-old virus that is continuing to evolve. So we need a strategy that is preparing us against these different contingencies, that's not letting up, that's not relaxing prematurely, and it's coming against a backdrop of governments, the most powerful and wealthy governments, beginning to signal that they're moving away from this, that they're racing towards the most optimistic conclusion Financing is becoming scarce. This year is a year of, of enormous importance for the replenishment of multiple institutions. Budgets are very tight and uncertain. How do we position this agenda effectively in this moment in time? You yourself have said this is the last two years has been a period of catastrophic failure of global leadership. And I agree. Um, so how do we reverse course there, in your view? Well, I think this brings us actually back to the Munich Security Conference in a way, because if I, as a, as a doctor, if I look at other sectors to learn from, the truth is that the security community do this all the time. They think of a central scenario that is the most likely, and they put most of their planning around it, but they do not ignore the other scenarios. They would, they would always ensure that they're covered across all of the things that may happen, even if the chances of that is relatively small, so that they're, as the security and the military apparatus, is not caught cold totally. I think we can learn from that, not because we want to be like the security force, not because we want to be a military organization, but because I think the health community on the whole has not done that. And it's not communicated that well enough into the political arena. And you talk about politics, and politics is absolutely crucially important. And in my view, this pandemic has been far worse 
because of the tension in the geopolitical arena. And of course, seeing that playing out now in the, in the horror of the evolving situation of Ukraine. But we are at risk of other events. And if the G7, the G20, the other Gs and the uh, global community cannot come together to say we face a common threat here, and it doesn't matter whether you're in China or the US or Europe or Africa, wherever you are in the world, you are going to face this threat of emerging challenges and they will not stop because the drivers, ecological change, environment change, urbanization, trade and travel, are the drivers and COVID is a symptom of that. And it will not be the last one. Do you think that we've underestimated the levels of exhaustion, accumulating exhaustion, anger, frustration, as this has gone on so long, right? I mean, you think of 1918 influenza was 18 months. We're now in the 26th month, and it's still not over. And what we're seeing across multiple democracies and semi-democracies is a hardening of opinion and an expressions in violence mm. and confrontation. Mm. A radicalization in some fashions and the convoys and what's happened in, 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 in Vienna and Brussels and parts of Germany and the like. Do you think we missed that fact or we didn't see the, that the longevity was going to have and begin to have some pretty extraordinary impacts politically? Yeah, I think we did. We underestimated it. You know, we, we couldn't have predicted it would have gone on for two to three years and still not be the end of it now. Yeah. We couldn't really, you know, the vaccines have been fantastic, but they've not got to the heart of the issue. They've not stopped transmission. And so we've still got uh, pockets of infection that are really at eye-watering uh, levels. But it also it brings you back to, you know, health, science, research doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in part of the societies that we're in. And those societies are diverse. They have different perspectives. They have different attitudes to evidence, to, to science, to vaccines indeed. Uh, and that is playing out at the moment in quite polarized societies, wherever we are. Thank you so much. Thanks for finding the time to be with us. It's a great pleasure. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.